with you from 10 p.m. to midnight on WPFW 89.3 FM Washington, building a better world one broadcast at a time. Hi, I'm Jackie Lukeman. Peace. I'm Sean Blackman, and we're the hosts of Darker Than Blue, your number one source for struggle, socialism, and soul. We explore people's movements, news, politics, music, and culture from a perspective that you won't hear from the bought and paid for corporate media. This is a show by the movement and for the movement. So we don't just want you to listen. We want you to get involved in the effort to change the world for the better. So check us out every Friday at 5 p.m. beginning January 5th on Pacifica Radio's WPFW. Building a better world, one broadcast at a time. At 89.3 FM, this is member-supported WPFW, Washington. Welcome to Community Watch and Comment. It's great to be with you at Dave Rabin here on Community Watch and Comment. And uh, we're here, uh, as always, on uh, January 30th. uh, uh, What is it? 19? What is it? 2024. Great to be with you. And... uh, uh, let me get to my notes here. One moment, please. Yeah, take a break. This is Andy Shalal, founder of Busboys and Poets and a longtime proud member of the WPFW family. I'm thrilled to be back on the air with my new show, Next Up to the Mic. During the hour, I'll be hosting writers, artists, poets, activists, as well as literary, political, and cultural leaders in our community. Tune in every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Scott Heron said, The revolution will not be televised, and yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station like WPFW that centers justice, reflects hope, and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. From February 4th through the 24th, we offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our Winter Pledge Drive and ensuring that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. WPFW, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. The great jazz master Sonny Rollins always says music 
is an open sky. This is Willard Jenkins inviting you to join me for my new WPFW show, Open Sky, Sunday afternoons from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. We'll explore great jazz classics, including many from the beloved Great American Songbook during our first hour. And then 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. will be my traditional What's New, the new release hour, as we check out what today's contemporary artists are up to with a raft of new releases. That's Open Sky, Sundays from 2 until 4 p.m. with your host, Willard Jenkins, on your station for Jazz and Justice, WPFW 89.3 FM. Don't sleep. This is Robin Holden, the proprietor of Robin's Place. Every Friday evening from 7 until 10 p.m., Robin's Place is a mythical entertainment center consisting of four floors. On each floor of Robin's Place, we have rooms that are named after people who I think are icons in music, theater, and literature. We have the Nancy Wilson Room, the Joe Williams Room, the Gloria Lynn Room, the Frank Sinatra Room, the B.B. King Blues Room, the James Baldwin Library, just to name a few. Join me Friday nights from 7 until 10 p.m. as I take you on a musical journey you'll never forget. Robin's Place. Sego, this is John Kane, and I want to invite you to join me right here on WPFW on Fridays at 2 p.m. for Let's Talk Native. I will deliver guests and commentary each week on the real-life issues facing Native people. No romanticizing and no Hollywood stereotypes here. We'll talk real history and culture and life as it is and as it should be. Our shows are available as podcasts on your favorite podcast platforms and as videos on our Let's Talk Native TV YouTube channel. Find links and more at our website, www.letstalknative.com. And I'll see you here Fridays at 2 p.m. for Let's Talk Native with John Kane. The talk show Africa Now airs Wednesdays at 1 p.m. It's a modern view on historical issues concerning the entire African world, addressing how African people are participating in globalization, ways in which the rest of the world continues to exploit African resources, uncovering labor violations by corrupt politicians and Western government powers. Learn what's happening now in interviews with artists, activists, scholars, and a host of other experts each episode. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Africa Now is also available on iTunes Podcast, Google Play music as well as soundcloud on your station for jazz and justice wpfw washington welcome to on the margin with e ethelbert miller in the studio this morning is mark eisner meredith m taylor calvin reed michonne boston todd stephen burroughs chanda buchanan ethelbert miller brings you on the margin Thursdays at 9 a.m. with personal, compelling interviews with local, national, and international authors of all backgrounds. To cite a few, screenplay writers, independent researchers, news editors, playwriters, poets, and contemporary novelists of nonfiction, fiction, comedy, historical biographies, and even graphic novels and comics. If you listen to what's behind the lines, you'll find yourself on the margin with Ethelbert Miller. Thursdays at 9 a.m. Catch the past episodes on our website, wpfwfm.org, and on iTunes and Google Play Music. On your station for jazz and justice, WPFW Washington. And welcome to Community Watch and Comment. I'm Dave Raymond. It is absolutely wonderful to be with you uh, here on Community Watch and Comment. Sorry for for the delay, and uh, uh, we have a wonderful show for you uh, here today. I'm I'm honored to be guest by uh, 
uh, Kia Duggins uh, from the Civil Rights Corps. Are you with us, Kia? Yes. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to have you you with us. So we've got this this crime bill in front of the uh, uh, the uh, D.C. Uh, Council. Uh, what's your overall assessment uh, of this uh, crime bill? I'm 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 gathering that you have certain concerns. Yes. So to introduce myself, good morning, everyone. My name is Kia Duggins. I'm an attorney at Civil Rights Corps, where I litigate against police abuse and unconstitutional bail practices nationwide, including in D.C. And I'm also a member of the Us Not Crimnibus Coalition, which includes several grassroots and national organizations that defend constitutional and human rights. And the main takeaway from the Secure D.C. bill, which advocates are calling the Crimnibus, as in don't throw us under the Crimnibus, The main takeaway from the Secure D.C. bill is that it does not promote public safety. Instead, Secure D.C. may make D.C. residents less safe by violating constitutional rights, overriding existing police accountability legislation, and further destabilizing people who already live at the margins of society. I mean, I I, I understand that. Why don't we go to the what seemed to be the critical... uh, uh, issue in this in these uh, crime-free zones. I mean, you you and others have serious concerns about this. Uh, if you could talk about that. Yes. So the crime-free zones are a great example of, of a provision in the secure DC bill that might violate the constitution. Um, so drug-free zones are essentially zones where the police can arrest almost anybody for any reason. And because arresting people for any reason without probable cause is unconstitutional, these kinds of drug-free zones were actually repealed back in 2014 because they promoted racial profiling and class-based profiling and led to lots of unconstitutional arrests. And so what Secure DC is trying to do is to bring back a law that has already been found unconstitutional and a law that will lead many people to be racially profiled and arrested without probable cause. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a serious problem. So you, you know, the police will be under this bill allowed uh, to say that uh, anyone existing within, within these zones are, are, are suspects uh, and will be able to uh, be arrested, uh, uh, you know, uh, without probable cause, which That's is right. a constitutional right. I mean, it's a, it's 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 a serious problem, and we should say that what in 2014 uh, the council disavowed this practice. Uh, the council, including the current mayor. Your Bowser said, no, this is not a good idea. You can't just go around arresting anybody within this zone uh, 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 because of uh, a, a suspected criminal activity. Uh, uh, you know, and now she's supporting a move by council member uh, 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 Pinto Brook uh, uh, to arrest anyone within these zones. It just, it sounds like serious overreach. Yes, that's exactly right. This bill, the drug-free zones are a great example of the overall aim of this bill, which is to repeal police accountability measures and constitutional measures that have already been passed and to bring back unconstitutional policing. So another example of that is the anti-mask laws in the Secure DC bill. Um, The DC code originally included masks and hoodies uh, in this anti-mask law, uh, but the that law was repealed in 2021 and the DC city council is trying to bring it back and basically say that if somebody has a face covering on during a demonstration or while on public property and they cause somebody to fear for their safety air quotes around fear for their safety (laughs) 
uh, then they can be arrested. And we are all familiar with the Trayvon Martin case and know that a vigilante superimposed criminal intent on him because of what he was wearing, which is a hoodie. And this anti-mask law will have a similar effect. It will cause mostly young Black people to be targeted for their clothing in the same way that Trayvon Martin was targeted for his clothing. And that is not only um, unsafe and uh, dangerous, it also is potentially unconstitutional in that it might infringe on people's First Amendment rights for freedom of expression. So, for example, what if a person is wearing a medical mask that has a protected political message on it and a person who disagrees with the message fears for their safety? What if somebody is wearing a burqa and an Islamic a Islamophobic person fears for their safety? What if a person is wearing a scarf and sunglasses while lawfully protesting and a person who disagrees with the protest message fears for their safety? And all of those instances, those people could be arrested under this anti-mask law. And we know that criminalizing clothing is generally ill-advised. Um, municipalities have criminalized clothing for a long time, mostly to target the LGBTQ community through criminalizing what governments called cross-dressing at the time. And so this anti-mask law is not only very dangerous for mostly young Black people who are similar to Trayvon Ma Martin, but it's also potentially unconstitutional as well. Right, right. But, you know, the council's reacting to some carry uh, crime numbers in D.C. last year, uh, what, including a 35% increase in homicides. That That's, that's serious. You have to go back to 1997 to find a year where more people were killed in the district. One can understand the D.C. Council proposing legislation to lessen the violence. I mean, it's it's you know it's an understandable reaction. Let's get tough about crime. What do you think? Yes, I totally understand that reaction, David. And I also am concerned about violence. I'm concerned about community safety. I want to make sure that everybody is able to live safe and violence-free lives. And the fact is that Secure DC does not reduce violence and in fact might increase violence by further destabilizing people's lives. So an example of this is the pretrial detention provision in Secure DC. The provision us will allow DC to detain more people pretrial for non-serious crimes such as um, trespass or theft or other non-violent crimes like that. And we know so much data has shown that pretrial detention destabilizes people's lives because it separates legally innocent people from their children and families. It causes legally innocent people to lose their jobs, to lose their housing, to lose their access to medical care. So when you detain people pretrial and destabilize their lives, you then increase the risk of that person committing violence or being a victim of violence later on once they get out of the cage that they were held in pretrial. Research also shows that there is no link between increasing police funding and decreasing crime. Analyses by several different think tanks, including by government-funded think tanks, have found no relationship between year-to-year -year police spending and, and crime rates. What has actually happened in D.C. is that we have defunded resources that the community could use to stay safe, such as housing, healthcare, education, food. Over one-third of people in D.C., are food insecure. And so all of those resource deprivations is what's driving violence. And Secure DC does not address that. Instead, what Secure DC does is tries to override police accountability legislation and bring back unconstitutional laws that lead to poor black and brown people being racially profiled, arrested, and having their lives further destabilized. And so the policy recommendations that we would make is to continue releasing people pre-trial. In D.C., 93% of people released pre-trial remain arrest-free. Um, remove the overrides of the police accountability legislation and to advance the Police Reform Commission's April 2021 recommendations. I understand. What, what do you think about uh, this piece of list? legislation that allows police officers to review their, their own body camera footage prior to making the report in cases 
non-abiding, serious use of force here. Your thoughts on that? Yes. So I can say as a civil rights attorney who sues the police in Washington, D.C., that having access to body-worn camera footage is crucial to holding the police accountable. And an example of that is in a case that we recently filed called Jackson versus District of Columbia, where the police racially profiled our client, arrested him without probable cause, um, and threw him in jail. And we brought false arrest charges. And the way that we were able to bring that case and survive motion to dismiss in that case is through body-worn camera footage, which clearly shows the police officers behaving in unconstitutional ways. Um, and allowing police officers to view their body-worn camera footage before, uh, before they write their reports might sound like a police accountability mechanism in the sense that it's like, oh, they can watch the footage and then make sure that their police report is accurate. Um, that's what probably the average person would think the result of letting police watch their camera footage before writing the report would be. Um, but the allowing police officers to watch that footage before it's released just creates further delays in the public getting access to the footage and also creates more delays in the public getting access to the police reports that the police subsequently write. And as I stated earlier, having access to the body-worn camera footage, having access to those police reports is crucial for holding the police accountable. Also, the last thing I'll say is that unfortunately, police lie in police reports all the time. <laughs> um, and so in many ways, having giving the police the opportunity to view the body-worn camera footage before they write their report could uh, could make their reports more accurate, but it could also, if the police are behaving, if the police are behaving unconstitutionally and that body-worn camera footage might encourage the police to try and uh, hide their, their actions. I mean, it's, it's kind of like blatantly obvious to me. I mean, to anybody looking at it, you know, why would you allow the police to look at the footage before they file the report? Just file the report according to what you understand the circumstances to be. And, you know, why allow them to look at the footage? I mean, it just seems on its face kind of ridiculous. Right. And there are already, as an advocate who is requesting body-worn camera footage all the time, there are already many delays in receiving body-worn camera footage because MPD gives lots of different excuses for why they don't need to release body-worn camera footage. And so this would add yet another barrier to advocates and to the public to getting the body-worn camera footage that they're entitled to receive under the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like obvious uh, uh, problem on its face. Have you seen this uh, mailer from Opportunity DC? Uh, it's funded by uh, business folks, uh, the same folks that funded uh, McDuffie's uh, uh, election uh, uh, bid against uh, Alyssa Silverman. Have you, have you seen that? I mean, it's just, it's curious to me. I mean, you've got these you know, a middle-aged black woman saying, hey, I've had enough of crime in my never neighborhood. I've never seen this before. Uh, but it's funded by uh, commercial interests. I personally did not know that it was funded through commercial interests, but that is not surprising to me um, because, as we know, the legislation that the D.C. City Council is proposing does not actually keep people safe does not actually hold the police accountable and mostly just protects the interests of property owners and protects the interests of business owners. This is not about public safety. It's about rolling back constitutional protections that people already had. It's about divesting from the infrastructure that we knows that we know keeps people safe, such as housing, healthcare, education, food, et cetera. And this is about avoiding accountability for government actors like the police so that they can over-police, racially profile people of color in low-income neighborhoods. That's what this bill is for. It is not to keep people safe. And it the only interest it protects are interests of businesses and interests of property owners. It is not 
protecting the interests of the average DC citizen in any way, shape, or form. So, so what is our schedule here? Uh, what, what we're looking at a vote uh, by the DC Council uh, next week, correct? Uh, what do you what do you think the what's your understanding of a likelihood of passage? I'm not. I don't really have an understanding of the likelihood of passage because my job is primarily litigation and not legislative. But I will say that again, I am part of the Us Not Crimnibus Coalition, and we are currently having a week of action where uh, DC residents can call into City Council and explain why they do not want the Secure DC Act to pass. So yesterday. Um, we had people call city council members to talk about pretrial detention. Today, we're actually having people call D.C. City Council to talk about the surveillance provisions of the Secure D.C. Act. And um, if anybody is interested in joining the Us Not Crimnibus Coalition and proposing amendments to this bill so that it does not pass as is, um, people can go to bit.ly slash no dash crimnibus dash day two. So that's bit.ly slash no dash crimnibus dash day two. And through that link, you'll be able to call your council member and explain why you do not want the secure DC act to pass. Right. And if you didn't get that link, uh, just call your, your, your at large council member or your, your specific council member and express your concern about this this uh, pending bill, which is imminent. I believe it's up for a vote uh, uh, next week. I've been speaking with the Civil Rights Corps. Uh, Kia Dungan, thank you so much for all you're doing, and, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And on to our Take It Away, Ray. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, D.C. is one of the greenest major cities in North America, with public green spaces available to meet the needs of our community. Yet we are profoundly de-investing de in these resources, especially critically needed programs to make green spaces safe, vital, and equitable for all. Since 1990, Washington Parks and People, DC's Alliance for Park-Based Communities Health and Health has worked with hundreds of partners and tens of thousands of people. They've worked together to revitalize over 230 parks, gardens, trails, and schoolyards across the capital. Steve Coleman is the president and executive director of D.C.'s Washington Parks and People. He joins us today to talk about parks and urban farming in the district. Um, I would like to invite everyone to join us, our listeners, to join in on the conversation. We would like to hear what you, how you feel about more green spaces in the district. Please dial in the 202-588-0893. And Steve... Welcome back. It's nice to have you back. Can you please share with us some background about Washington Parks and People? Absolutely, Ray. Thanks so much. It's really an honor to be here again. <clears throat> and good morning to all the listeners. At Great. Um, Parks and People began out of tragedy on Dr. King's birthday 34 years ago when a boy was uh, who'd grown up on my block uh, was killed next to my home at noon. And uh, at the time, we were the murder capital of the country, and the murder center was my neighborhood alongside Columbia Heights. And uh, the police told us to go inside when the boy's name was Ricky Magnus. When Ricky died, they said, you know, we needed to just stay inside, don't go out at night, don't talk to strangers, and don't go in Malcolm X or Meridian Hill Park. And our neighbors didn't feel like that was the answer. We felt like we needed to get outside and somehow do something about the problem other than sticking our head in the sand. And so we came together and prompted by a group of African-American elders, we started a nonviolent community crime patrol, um, which had no weapons. It wasn't a vigilante thing, but it had a simple requirement that the grandparents taught us, which was that we had to say hello to everybody we met. And as we did that, going in Malcolm X Park and through our neighborhood streets at night, 
we found that we were able to bridge these gaps and get beyond the ignorance and fear that actually breed crime by forging community. And in the process, mm-hmm. we learned that community is really far more powerful than any weapon. And as a result of that, we started you know, trying to make the park come back to life, bringing music back to it, standing up for the drummers that people were trying to force out of the park. And, and in the process, over five years, we reduced crime by over 99%, Ray, because people wow. had so much more power than police, than guns. Mm-hmm. Um, they could really make the park come alive through these community mechanisms. And it became a It's a place to go, right? It's a safe place to be. So that's that's what makes it uh, really community. And then it becomes safer, right? Because there's just more people embracing that idea. Exactly. It, it, you create yeah. a positive uh, feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So that's how we started. And um, the mission grew out of that, this idea that um, we could do more with parks and just stop violence. We could really grow community. Um, and our mission is growing park-based community health. And when we say that, we mean not just physical health, but nutritional health. We're farming in the parks. We mean economic health. We're creating jobs in the park. Uh, civic health. We're countering disengagement. Um, environmental health. Uh, all these different kinds of ways that health has been denied to people when we disinvest in the outdoors. Right. And can you elaborate on some of the some of the specific things that um, your organization has done recently, uh, particularly, you know, the district we're seeing this kind of rise in in crime again. And I think a lot of people are feeling kind of a nerve. There's carjackings, there's burglaries, and it seems to be, you know, across the district. And I would imagine you're facing some challenges right now. We really are, Ray. We've had um, a real increase in violence, and it's a direct byproduct of the government turning its back on the outdoors. We are grossly mm-hmm. disinvesting in the outside, in the places where the violence is worst. It's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see this, and we're going back mm-hmm. to the violence levels that we haven't seen in 20 years. Well, 20, 25 years ago, we learned that turning our back on the outside is turning our back on each other. We're dissing these communities. We're hurting people. People are dying because we're not fielding a a city outside. And so you look at a place like Marvin Gaye Park, which is an Mm -hmm. amazing, amazing park in far northeast D.C., where we've been embedded for 23 years. And we've lost a lot of ground because there are no police patrols regularly in the park. The trash is not being picked up. The um, programs from the city are almost non-existent. Uh, and it, it's just kind of like thinking that parks are just kind of something that doesn't really matter. But what we found is that parks, the community open space, is the lifeblood of, of community pride and power and peace. And so that's what we're trying to press. And there are uh, pieces of legislation in the council that are pending on this. Councilmember George has introduced uh, a bill to actually uh, reprioritize parks, to invest in the, in the forests and these places that are no-go zones now and make them come back to life. And I think that's the kind of approach we need rather than going back to uh, the mass incarceration approaches that obviously failed and only made crime and, and conditions of crime worse. Right. And so you see this kind of slippage happening in the parks. Now, I went to your website with your organization, and you've listed several programs that you've worked or been able to execute in the past, but it seems like they have been under-resourced or they're not resourced currently. And, um, you know, what, what do we do now? I mean, what is the thing that the city, you talk about more patrols in the parks. It seems to me if you, the city needs to do that because if the parks are not patrolled and there's not security there, there, that creates a vacuum. And that's where crime will, will live, right? That's where people will go to do things that will make other people feel like they can't go into those areas. So it almost feels like it's, it's, it's something that really needs to be a top priority. Absolutely. And it's not just patrols because if, if police just stay inside their cars, 
and they don't get out and meet people, they mm-hmm. don't learn, they don't counter the ignorance and the divide, it only gets worse. But if you get officers out on bikes, and you don't have to have police doing all the patrolling, there's a great program that's Mm-hmm. that isn't getting enough funding in the Department of Parks and Recreation for the urban park rangers. But at the moment, they're not ranging out in the park. Mm. They're just rec center security guards. They don't have any weapons, but back in the day, that program was an amazing mentor program where these folks in uniform were uh, representing the kind of um, park leadership that the community can have. Um, And that's the kind of approach that we can have if we think beyond police and beyond the traditional approaches to really thinking about a kind of whole of community, whole of city approach to how we counter violence and crime. If we think of the parks as village greens, um, where we can base uh, all these positive attributes that our communities have, there's so much more we can do. So let's make the parks come alive. Let's have movies again out in the park. Let's Let's mm-hmm. get the farming going. We found that urban farming can actually um, produce far more food than people realize. It's not just a, a cutesy little garden thing. You can actually have real agricultural production and be countering both the violence and the nutritional health disparities that we have in our city. Right, because you're putting folks to work, right, giving them a sense of purpose. It's very community. And then you're solving the problem because you're feeding hungry people that are living in parks right now, right? Because of home insecurity. Yeah, I mean... So it seems know, to solve a lot of problems. We have these food apartheid areas. I say more mm-hmm. than food desert. They're kind of places where there's been an intentional um, deprivation of healthy food in whole sections of our city. Well, we can grow that healthy food and we can grow it in mass quantity. Right now, the city has a goal of just 20 new acres of agriculture by 2032. Well, that's just at odds with what's happening all over the world. We could do two orders of magnitude more than that, ultimately. We could be growing food for the people in a way that's helping the environment, helping community, helping people's lives in 2,000 acres of the city. We could really take urban agriculture to the level of being a meaningful part of health equity for everybody. You know, and when I think about we talk so much about community garden spaces, right? You see these little patches of land and people, neighbors go and they plant and they compost. And, and I, it looks nice to me, but it just doesn't look like really efficient. And what you're describing, you know, in a park where you're, it's underutilized land, it's a place where people can gather and it's, it just, it, it solves a lot of problems. Can you elaborate? Like, Take us there. What would it look like? What kind of things would we grow in those parks? How would you distribute the food? What kind of resource? How does the city resource this? Or, or are you relying, you know, mostly on volunteers? Yeah, so ultimately we can do this where we can create jobs if we take it seriously. And you're mm-hmm. right. The traditional approach to community gardens is inefficient. I think it's unfair because it's just sort of, the lottery, whether you happen to be there first to claim a spot. And then people usually don't know what to do with their plot. And so they might go on the internet and see it looks good to put mothballs to counter slugs and instantly they've contaminated any chance of having organic food. But if people work together in a purposeful, collaborative, year-round farming method, as we're doing at the Columbia Heights Green and the Marvin Gaye Greening Center and others are doing across Mm -hmm. the city, we can really grow food intensively and we can do it in a way that really meets our needs. Um, We could actually meet the food needs of everybody under the poverty line if we were growing food in those 2,000 acres across the city. So right now, in the depth of winter, you can walk into our big greenhouses in the Marvin Gaye Greening Center and you can find kale and bok choy and turnips and radishes and lemon balm and mint and and so many different healthy foods that you can eat right away. And nobody has to wait to be part of the farm. Anyone can come and help and anyone can come and harvest. Um, And we can take that model and intensify it and and take it to scale across the city. Um, And at the same time, we can train people in jobs. So we're using the farms and the parks as a base of green job training through our DC Green Corps. We've graduated mm-hmm. 260 adults in that program. 
And it's really exciting to see people who've been incarcerated, who've been left aside, take finding new pride in their lives and really becoming the leaders and, and getting a trajectory in their lives and jobs, careers, and enterprises um, where what they do in the parks can be a platform for becoming the leaders they want to be. Wow, that sounds amazing. And it does sound like definitely something that would be very scalable, um, much like your Columbia Heights location. And so where, how does the food distributor, is it like, do you grow it and then it it's at the farmer's markets or is it the folks that are actually tending to the, to the gardening that, that acquire the, uh, the produce? Right now we have a free farm market that we run each Saturday at the greening center. We want to grow more food and we want to have cash crops as well so that we can support jobs and take this to mm-hmm. scale. And so we actually have a volunteer consulting team that just started with us this week that's helping us look at how we ramp that up. And it's pretty cool, Ray, because in addition to the farm, we have a commercial kitchen. We have the old nightclub where Marvin Gaye first performed professionally in that neighborhood. And that's the old Barnett's Cafe, which we operate as the Riverside Healthy Living Center. Um, And we have an amazing event venue in our impact citywide impact hub at the Josephine Butler Park Center in Columbia Heights, uh, where we're doing a social enterprise where we have all kinds of community programming, but we also have weddings that help pay for the work that we do all over the city. And so that can tie in as well on the cash generation part of this equation. Right. And before we talk more about the center, it's really interesting kind of this bridge you're talking about going from incarceration to learning about farming, that whole farm to table process and, and building skills. I mean, these are skills that you could take with you anywhere, right? You could live anywhere. uh, You could scale it up. Yeah. So it just, it really sounds, can you talk to me more about how that developed? Yeah. um, We found that program working as we were working in the parks and saying hello to people, we'd be saying hi to the drug dealers and they would, honestly say to us, look, I don't want to be doing this, but I need a job and there's so much discrimination. What are you going to do about that? And frankly, Ray, Mm -hmm. we didn't have a good answer until we decided Mm -hmm. that we had to launch a program of using the parks as a base of job training, not just in food, but in, in park reclamation, in environmental initiatives, in the green economy, which is still pretty discriminatory. It's leaving out a lot of black and brown folks. Um, Mm -hmm with the way they set up the qualifications and so forth. And so we wanted to set up an intensive training program to, first of all, give people the comfort and the pride and the power to be able to take the initiative to seek those jobs that weren't available. And then to be able to develop the capacity to really, as we were saying, take this to scale. Um, And we concentrated on people coming, you know, returned citizens coming out of being incarcerated the very people who have strikes against them and weren't able to be employed. Um, And it's been amazing to see what people have done with this training. They're not all becoming farmers or park people, but there's a real power Mm -hmm. in the kind of pride that you feel when you're able to feed people, when you're able to reclaim and transform in a given morning a forgotten hillside that's been a blight for a generation, and then you plant trees that you can show to your grandchildren. It's pretty amazing. Um, and right now, D.C. and the federal government are often contracting with firms that are outside of the city um, to do the landscape and park work. Um, why should that be? Why can't we uh, fill the jobs for our own neighborhoods that are people in our neighborhoods? Great. Thank you so much. We have a caller. Thank you so much for calling into WPFW. Can you um, please tell us your name and where you're calling from and your question for Steve? Yes, my my uh, my, my name is David Nickerson. I'm a farmer, uh, African-American farmer in Prince George's County. And I just wanted to couldn't, uh, uh, make a statement about the young man. I guess his name is Steve. Yes. If I could just address and emphasize some of the things that he is saying, because he's absolutely correct. We have the solution. We have the solution. What we don't have is the organization. And I, I just want to address that. I'm a farmer. I sell my products down at Sacopa Cafe during the summertime. 
plants, etc. Uh, on the name of our farm is Sankofa Farm and, and Nursery. We're in Brandywine, Maryland. Thank you. Thank Steve, you. what do you... Thank you so much, David. It's great to hear of your work. Um, you know, back in the 1950s, 15% of all farms in America were Black-owned and Black-operated. Now that figure is less than 2%. That's ridiculous. Yes. You know, yes. well, Steve, what I wanted to say to you, you're absolutely correct. If you can get organization whereby returning citizens, working with churches, with spaces, all sorts of we have to see that the, the people who can train and teach. I'm 75 years old. My wife and I, we are cert- I'm a certified farmer. She, my, my wife is a, a certified uh, uh, a, 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 a plant person in the state of Maryland. We sell, as I said, it's her Kofa Cafe during the uh, summertime right by Howard University. But if you can organize people throughout starting small throughout D.C. to take, use the spaces and to create tomatoes, you know how much tomatoes are? And, and I'm, I'm sure you know all of these things vegetables are. And what they, if we can find a central places or two or three central places to these people to bring their product and so forth, they can make money. On, right now we're seeding. Right now I'm seeding for tomatoes and, and doors from seed. Do you know how much a seed, a tomato seed costs? Maybe a penny and a half. Maybe two pennies at the most, depending on the variety, better boy, early girl, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know how much a tomato plant, when you go to one tomato plant, when you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, you pay for? So what I'm saying, money can be made if, if you can be, if, if we I got my nice Absolutely, David. Please go ahead. <laughs> David, thank you so much for calling. We really appreciate your your phoning in and, and sharing with us your experience as a farmer. We really do. And I think Steve and I will agree that uh, we definitely need more resources to um, resource more farming and green spaces in the district. You have been joined by Steve Coleman. He is the executive director of Washington Parks and People. Steve, can you please uh, let our guests know where they can find your work, how they can get involved in uh, community greening? Uh, they can contact us at volunteer at WashingtonParks.net, um, or they can call Go Number Two Park. Uh, we're on the net at uh, WashingtonParks.net. Um, we're on Facebook and other places, but you can also come out every Wednesday and Saturday at the Marvin Gaye Greening Center in Marvin Gaye Park, 10 a.m. We're farming, we're harvesting right through the winter, and there's so much that we can all learn from each other uh, by just getting back together outside. A lot of people are still stuck inside coming out of the pandemic. This is a time as we go into this new year that we can really live the dream of coming back together outside to restore our communities, restore our land, and give our kids the hope and equity and justice that they all deserve. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate your time and look forward to speaking with you again really soon. You bet, Ray. Thanks so And wonderful uh, having you, Steve Coleman. And on to our last guest, the Baltimore Symphony is presenting a wildly challenging program in early February, a transformative exploration of life, death, legacy, struggle, and triumph. The Resurrection Mixtape fuses the classical music of Notorious B.I.G. and Jipak Shakur's with uh, Mala's Resurrection Symphony. I'll give you a taste of how challenging this fusion is.
we are talking about a uh, amazing uh, uh, performance that's going to be uh, February 9th at the Strathmore in North Bethesda, February 10th at the Meerhof in Baltimore. And joining us now, give us a context for this wonderful challenge as the creator and conductor for the program, Steve Hackman. Welcome to Committee Watch and Comment, sir. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. It's great having you. We didn't quite get the the the, the full uh, 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 context uh, with the Mahler, but uh, how did you come up with this idea? I mean, I'm I was raised in a classical music uh, tradition. And I saw this, and I went, "Wow!" I mean, how are you going to combine hip hop with uh, with Mahler? How how did this all come about? Well, I would say it starts, um, you know, my musical journey has been one of exploring and, you know, uncovering the mysteries of classical music and popular music in parallel. I've always been interested in both. And, you know, the more I sort of, uh, the further and further along I got in the classical music world, the further I thought that world was becoming distanced from the popular music world. And I've made it a mission to create a bridge between the two, um, to show what similarities they had, um, to try to reveal and, and shine a spotlight on music on both sides. Because you know, music in the popular sphere, though many purists or traditionalists on the classical side might not think so, is just as substantive and, and essential and, and thorough as music on the classical side. And it's a great joy to be able to bring audiences together and, and especially to welcome new audiences that maybe haven't had an invitation to come to the symphony hall. I mean, I think it's just such a, a wonderful idea. I mean, as I said, I'm, I was raised in the classical music tradition and infusing with, with hip hop. It's just, it's just very creative, very, very wonderful. And you, you seem to be, on a mission, and and you've got something coming up with the uh, with the Baltimore Symphony uh, uh, following this concert, correct? Exactly. So so we're doing a piece called the Resurrection Mixtape on February 9th at Strathmore and February 10th at the Meyerhoff in Baltimore. And this piece combines Mahler's Second Symphony, his Resurrection Symphony, with the music of Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G. So. Mahler's second is really an exploration of death and the afterlife, and it explores what the idea of rebirth and the afterlife is. And to me, there's no two better artists um, than Tupac and Biggie to talk about what the afterlife and, and what death and life and life after death is. I mean, these are the titles of Biggie's albums. And you know, you only need to see the, the images of murals around the world and kids with Tupac and Biggie t-shirts now 30, 40 years later in, in just all corners of the world to know that they they do live forever through their music. They have changed pop culture forever. And so this is an amazing exploration of that. It's just, it's really just a tremendous connection. I commend you. For your efforts, I think you have something in April with the Baltimore Symphony uh, regarding Stravinsky. Check out the Baltimore Symphony uh, website uh, uh, for further information and, uh, on that. Uh, but uh, we have February 9th at the Strathmore uh, for your for your most current uh, performance. February 10th at the Meyerhoff in Baltimore. Steve Hackman, I commend you for all you're doing, and thank you for for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Look forward to seeing you soon. It's great having you. And that's going to do it for our show. Uh, thanks to Mike DeSella for his uh, incredible engineering expertise uh, getting us through this rocket show today. Coming up, the, uh, the WPFW News headlines followed by Don't Forget the Blues by the unbelievably amazingly. We're 
and uh, listen to uh, David uh, Wetdown tomorrow uh, at uh, the same hour. She'll have a wonderful show. Please contact me, uh, drabin, D-R-A-B-I-N, 902 at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, uh, input, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Rabin uh, uh, with Ray Valencia. Uh, stay safe and have a good week. Take care. Bye-bye. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today's Tuesday, January 30th. Here are some headlines. President Biden told reporters today that he has decided how the U.S. will respond to a drone strike against a U.S. base in Jordan on Sunday without revealing what that decision entails. Biden did say we don't need a wider war in the Middle East. The attack killed three U.S. service members and injured dozens of personnel. In a joint press conference yesterday with the NATO Secretary General, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. response to the attack could be multi-level, come in stages, and be sustained over time. A group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility for the attack. Iran denies any involvement. A U.S. official said yesterday that U.S. air defenses failed to stop the attack drone after mistaking it for an American drone that approached a base near Jordan's border with Syria at the same time. In domestic news, the House Homeland Security Committee is expected today to approve articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. In what is almost surely to be a party-line vote, the panel is poised to charge Mayorkas with refusing to uphold the law and breaching the public trust in his handling of a surge of migrants across the U.S. border with Mexico. House Democrats released a report yesterday defending Mayorkas and calling the impeachment effort, quote, a politically motivated sham to appease extreme MAGA members and partisan special interest groups, close quote. Democrats argue that Republicans failed to provide evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, which is the constitutional standard for impeachment. The Illinois State Board of Elections is expected to vote today on whether to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot in March. Supporters of the proposal argue Trump's actions during the U.S. Capitol riot disqualifies him from running in the presidential election under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a Civil War-era provision that bars anyone from holding office who took an oath to support the Constitution and then, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, close quote. The vote by the Illinois State Board of Elections comes a little more than a week before the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in a similar case from Colorado. In a notable development reported by The Guardian, 25 Civil War historians filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court supporting Colorado's decision to remove Trump from the state's primary ballot. And a civil rights complaint was filed yesterday against Harvard University on behalf of Muslim and Palestinian students who say the school failed to protect them from harassment and intimidation. The complaint was filed with the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights by the Muslim Legal Fund of America. The Legal Fund said students faced, quote, rampant harassment and racist attacks, including doxing, stalking, and assault simply for being Palestinian, Muslim, and 
supporters of Palestinian rights, close quote. The complaint calls for an immediate investigation. The Department of Education is already investigating